For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, food writer Rita Connolly tells about some Tucson restaurant history, including the controversial origins of the chimichanga. Author Jesse Sensabar shares signs of life and death he's found along the highways of the Southwest in his new book. Meet author and futurist Thomas Thwaites, who decided one day to take a break from being human and try becoming a goat. And looking back 60 years to two times when Martin Luther King Jr. visited Tucson. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This summer, the construction project to widen Broadway Boulevard will claim the building that, since 1941, had been the home of La Rua's Mexican restaurant. To some, this represents the end of another of Tucson's original dining traditions. But food writer Rita Connolly has a broader outlook. She's written a lot about food and history in her books, including Historic Restaurants of Tucson. I asked her if she thought the number of family-owned restaurants in Tucson was special. I do, and I found that really true when I was writing the historic restaurants of Tucson um, because so many of them are in their fourth generation. It's amazing. You know, their grandma and grandpa started it and then, you know, well, great grandma and grandpa started it and it, it just gets passed on down to the next generation. I've also found though that that fourth generation, the third generation doesn't necessarily want to be involved and so um, that's kind of where it ends sometimes. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's just one of those things. It just happens that, you know, third, fourth generation, like, the, you know, the all Charles family. And then it makes it easy for me to write that because they all have these wonderful stories about their families, how they came to the country or how, like with Mama Luisa's, both times, both owners, somebody was visiting, a cousin or sister or something, and they loved it so much, they thought, oh, I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to open a restaurant, and that's kind of what happens. You know, it just, Tucson captures you. Um, Pat's Hot Dogs is another story. They were traveling through town, and um, his wife was from England, and she needed um, to get her some paperwork done. So they stayed a couple of days, and they liked it so much, they stayed forever. What's another interesting restaurant origin that you know of where happenstance led to the foundation of a dining tradition? Wow, now, you've, now I've got to think about that one. Um at Lotus Garden, Daryl, who is his parents owned a grocery store. That grocery store is a native street market. <laughs> he came to this country. Um, he was the typical immigrant. You know, he had nothing in his pocket. He had he had a job, and he worked for this his relative at the at the grocery store, and then he got married. They had a matched wedding. And then they decided that they needed more because the grocery store wasn't enough. And so he got the restaurant. Well, talking about a restaurant that emerged from the Chinese grocery store business here in Tucson, that was a really important uh, economic factor around the turn of the century, uh, the last century. Right. Let's talk a little bit about how Chinese immigrants might have played a role in the birth of the chimichanga, something okay. you explore in the new book. <laughs> well, there's quite a controversy as to how chimichangas came to be. Years ago, the Tucson paper had an uh, article about the 100 items that are Tucson, and one of them was a chimichanga, and they included the El Charo story. Well, some reader wrote and said, hey, no. His theory was that the Chinese invented the chimichanga. Chinese wives 
for their Mexican husbands, kind of like a fusion, original fusion food. The thing that I find wrong about that is there were not a lot of Chinese women in Tucson, and when they came, they came to be with their husbands, and, um, and it was really hard to get here. There's numbers in the book about how many Chinese there were all together and, and how many women were here. So my theory is that it, would, it was probably the Chinese cooks who were traveling with the armies, they had the items there. They had tortillas and something on the run, or easy to pack in your ba- you know your your backpack or whatever. If the Chinese had anything to do with it, that's my theory. El Charo has a story. Of course, Macayo has a story. Um, Club Twenty One has a story. Gordos, if I don't know if you remember Gordos, but Gordos has a story about the origin of the chimney. Um, there's also a really neat story about a restaurant in Avondale. Um, they called it the Golden Fried Burrito. And I thought, wow, you know, how could you pass up a dish named Golden Fried Burrito? It was really cute. When he died, they said in his obituary, they said, Dad, oh, we don't care what anybody else said. We know that you were the one who invented the chimichanga. So everybody who has a story believes that that's their story. What do you think about the changing face of Tucson? And what are people who settle here now going to think about Tucson's restaurant diversity and family tradition? Well, I think that we've come a really long way. I mean, mostly, you know, Tucson's known for Mexican food. I don't think that's happening anymore. And I I know that the university plays a role in that. But, you know, we have like four or five restaurants from different countries in Africa. And we have, all of a sudden, there's a rash of Asian restaurants. All of a sudden, there are new to places. And that's really lots of fun. People are taking even Mexican and kind of spinning it a little bit. Like at Tumerico, she's going vegetarian and vegan and putting out some really good food. So I think that things are changing in, in a really good way. You know, people people's tastes have gotten more diverse, and we're even getting away from downtown a little bit, which I think is really great. I mean, I live on I live on the north midtown, I consider it, but there's all kinds of restaurants that I can choose from, you know, international, and more than one very often. You know, there's more than one Japanese restaurant on Campbell Avenue. It's like, wow, that's pretty cool. Food writer Rita Connolly's latest book is called Arizona Chimichangas, published by the History Press. Thirtieth of September, twenty seventeen, Nevada Smith Saloon. Last days of September, spitting blood in the changing barrio. Old shrines recycled into retaining walls for the zero-scaped yards of the ironically hip and upwardly mobile. Infield is here and now, wandering to the hoodoos on I-10, documenting the passing shrines with a dust-covered thing. We pick apples, pears, pumpkins, and sunflowers. In Nevada Smith's saloon, tucked into the trailer parks on the Miracle Mile, where the whiskey is cash only, and they take their karaoke seriously, prime rib or prime rib, no need for menus here. There's an old mechanical cigarette machine taking quarters by the door. Another sign of another passing time. It doesn't stand still. I would not want it to. But in the last hours of September, here in the neon desert, it almost sounds like a good idea. Jesse Sensabar has intimately learned the lay of the land in the Southwest by riding it mile after mile, often in the cab of a tow truck, which he drove for more than 30 years. Sensabar's eyes have often been drawn to the crosses, shrines, and places of remembrance that dot the highway landscape. 
Eventually, he began documenting these places, taking photos, recording the names, and sharing his thoughts on Facebook. Now he has a published collection called Blood in the Asphalt, Prayers from the Highway, written to commemorate those who never made it to their destination. I started towing pretty much right out of high school. I think probably the first time I hopped in a tow truck, I was maybe 19 years old. I started towing on the on the south side of Chicago. I worked for a lady who had a, had a garage, and when it became apparent that I wasn't going to ever be the world's greatest mechanic, she bought a tow truck and stuck me in it. <laughs> um, and away I went. And, uh, and I've been towing off and on ever since. It's the thing I've always come back to, and and you know, and I, and I like it. It's it's it it has the potential to be incredibly mundane and boring, but it also has the the potential at any moment in time to get very exciting. And just that potential was always enough to keep me, uh, you know, keep me interested, even when when nothing exciting did happen. Here in Arizona, where there's all this empty space and the weather can be so hostile to life that it seemed to me that there was a good chance that your career as a tow truck driver had been a recurring play of someone getting in above their head, you getting the call, you going to find them, and then this amazing gratitude from these people who were probably scared to death until you showed up to save them. How often would you say that that was the template for what you experienced? Occasionally, but, um, but not nearly as much as you might think. Well, man, you know, I would think there would be so many people who'd be out there who'd have maybe, you know, this tiny amount of water with them and nothing else, and they would just be thinking, this might be it. I, I think I see buzzards. <laughs> yeah, and that does happen occasionally, and we keep water in all the trucks, and, and uh, in the winter we make sure there are blankets in all the trucks, especially up north. Some people are, are really happy to see us in some situations. Do you think that you look at Arizona a little bit differently based on the number of hours you've logged behind the wheel? Yeah, I think so. One of the reasons this book exists is because I'm unafraid to to whip over onto the side of the highway and, and hop out and look at these shrines. You know, I'm real comfortable working on the shoulder of the road. I've spent my whole life on the shoulder of the road. It's not a um, safe or comfortable place for most people, and I didn't even really know that until fairly recently. When people are like, wow, it's really cool. You know, I always drive by and see those things, but I never I never stop. And I'm like, well, why don't you stop? Well, they're on the side of the highway. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, it's, you know, it's just not a not a place you want to be. And, I, you know, I sort of never thought of that because I spent my life working on it. But it's, it's certainly given me an appreciation for this state and especially um, some of the lesser-known places in this state. I remember when I discovered Navajo Mountain, for example, um, which you know at that time wasn't even on any maps. I was like, wow, if this place wasn't on the wasn't on a reservation, you know, it would be a it would be a national monument. What sorts of things do you often find at the shrines? Uh, I mean, we see the white crosses from the road maybe as we're going by, but we don't often get a chance to see what might be at the base of that cross. What might people have left there? You'll find offerings to the spirit on its journey, um, food and water, or food and Gatorade are not uncommon. A lot of religious memorabilia, sometimes bottles of whiskey, a um, couple of joints. You know, I found little baggies of, of heroin and cocaine. Uh, you find all kinds of little, but you also find, you know, stuffed animals, children's toys, graduation ribbons, photographs, uh, you know, nicely framed photographs to, you know, things just stuck up there. 
There's a really small entry in your book here. It says 27 August 2017, Dudleyville, Arizona Highway 77, southbound at mile 132, a fallen cross for Joseph Paul. You wrote, I'm tempted to put it back up, but I don't want to interfere. Why do you think you had the reaction that you may have had to that particular situation? It just seemed like in that space that I shouldn't put that cross back up, you know? Um, that 77 road has a huge number of memorials along it. Um, and and it just, it just, you know, it was it was tempting, but I it, it just it just didn't seem like the right thing to do, so I didn't do it. Twenty fourth of May, twenty sixteen. More cartoon shrines to El Chilongo, down on the south side of the borderlands, at the edge of the big truck economic zone. Takes so long for the commercial truck traffic to cross. It's no wonder the passing of time feels like death to Mexican transport drivers. It's funny to me how, despite the wall and the heavy security, things still look much the same on both sides of the border town of Nogales. At the 21 kilometer edge of the zone, returning my temporary import permit for my truck, my nephew was riding shotgun and I stopped to show him these shrines. We picked up a 300 peso statue of the Virgin of Guadalupe for a friend, worked our way back across the border, a few miles stretching to ours, then to Tucson where, floating, we watched a peregrine falcon in the big mesquite beside the pool until we made him nervous and he flew off with his dinner clutched in his talons. Jesse Sensabar's collection of essays and photos is called Blood in the Asphalt, Prayers from the Highway, published by Tolson Books. While we all need a holiday once in a while, it's safe to say that few of us would consider the kind of holiday that Thomas Thwaites took. The author and futurist, who teaches at the Rhode Island School of Design, decided to escape the tribulations of modern human life by slowing down, taking it easy, learning to walk on all fours, and enjoy the natural taste of grass. Thomas Thwaites temporarily transformed himself into a goat. Well, sort of. Here he is to explain. Well, actually, first, my original plan was to become an elephant. Basically, the whole becoming something um, came from a sort of dissatisfaction with my human life, I suppose. A particular time in my life when I was a little bit kind of downtrodden, perhaps, money, relationships, work, not going very well, family, not going very well. And I happened to be dog sitting, like looking after my niece's dog. And this dog is just a joyous, happy animal, doesn't have any of these human worries. And I had that thought, which I think lots of people have when they look at their pets, um, which is, oh, you're so lucky. Look at you there, just happy, kind of mucking around, um, sort of doing nothing. One thing that occurs to me, Thomas, is that the things that make us human are the wiring in our heads more so than, say, our thumbs or our erect walking posture or anything like that. 
So in attempting to make this transition and to take this vacation, did you find yourself having to confront your own wiring? Yes, very much so. I mean, like any other kind of design project, how could I possibly achieve this impossible dream? Doing research, talking to people, making prosthetics and trying to break the problem down, like the mind, you know, what makes a human mind different from a goat's mind? Um, and so I went and spoke to neuroscientists and goat behavioral psychologists and sort of, you know, said, oh, I'm trying to become a goat. How can I, like, become a goat? <laughs> and um, so the goat behavioral psychologist, Queen Mary University in London, kind of boiled it down to this idea of storytelling and language, um, you know, basically imagining stories and then being able to tell people about them. Okay, well, how am I going to turn off these kind of particular abilities in my mind? A neuroscientist who works with transcranial magnetic stimulation, Professor Joe Devlin at University College London, I pestered him for a while. That's what I did quite a lot in this project, pestered academics. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so I needed to learn how to walk on four legs. And I needed to make some prosthetics, which would let me revert to a sort of four-legged anatomy. And so how uncomfortable was that in application? Uh, it was very uncomfortable, I should say. In my fantasy of, like, just running free across the hillsides as a goat, I'd kind of pictured it as a wonderful escape. So I could stay in goat form like maybe an hour before sort of having to like sit down. I mean, goats sit down, right? They sort of, you know, occasionally lie down or whatever. So I could kind of clomp along for about an hour, maybe less even, depending on the terrain. Were there any other physical modifications that you needed to achieve to reach goatdom? So I had an artificial rumen, which I uh, strapped to my torso and the idea was that I could take a mouthful of grass, chew it up, and then spit it into one side of this room, and, and then it would kind of go through and be kind of fermented, and then I could suck out this fermented grass mixture and then swallow it from the other side of the, the room. What in the world was that like? <laughs> that was pretty disgusting. I mean, the whole project, in a way, was painful and disgusting and uncomfortable, but interesting nonetheless. <laughs> okay. So how did you choose a population of goats to infiltrate? What was on your mind as you looked for your new friends and neighbors? I thought it would be nice to cross the Alps as a goat. Um, and so I contacted a goat farmer um, in the Alps, in the Swiss Alps, and had a strange email back and forth and then turned <laughs> up one day to, and said, can I live with your goats? And he said, okay, uh, which was nice. So these were domesticated goats who therefore were, you know, familiar with human beings. Yeah, I'm not sure if they took me as a human being. I, I think at the beginning, they definitely didn't take me as a goat. But eventually, I like to think that we kind of, you know, I was almost became part of the herd. I mean, that's what the goat farmer, when I was leaving, he said that he thought the goats had accepted me into the herd. So um, goats are social animals and yeah, they do have a, a hierarchy. So 
they'll have the top goat in a group um, and then a pecking order. And one of the reasons why I thought that maybe I'd kind of been accepted into the herd was there was a moment when I thought I was going to have to like kind of butt heads, basically have a kind of uh, fight to determine where I was in the pecking order. Were you prepared for that kind of uh, eventuality? Um, not really. I was wearing a kind of bicycle helmet. Um, it's very different when you're at eye level to very powerful animal which has got horns um, because suddenly you realize those things are weapons and they're very good for stabbing you in the neck or knocking you off the side of a mountain. Um, so <laughs> basically I was, I think I was like the lowest of the low in this herd of goats because uh, yeah, I had to run away. Thomas Thwaites wrote a book about his experience called Goat Man, How I Took a Holiday from Being Human, published by Princeton Architectural Press, and it earned Thwaites an Ig Nobel Prize in 2016. In the six and a half years that he's been writing the column Street Smarts for the Arizona Daily Star, David Layton has uncovered some fascinating Tucson history. Next, Layton tells me about two visits to Tucson by a legendary American that are remembered fondly by those who were there. Well, they had uh, recently named a street, M.L. King Jr. Way, um, over on Park Avenue and 36th Street. And that kind of got me interested in seeing if there was any history uh, related to Martin Luther King in Tucson, because now we have a street named after him. So that's what began kind of the search. Uh, He visited uh, Tucson in 1959 and in 1962 as well. Who hosted uh, Martin Luther King when he visited Tucson? He spoke at what's now called Centennial Hall. And it was actually Mary Jeffries who was in charge of the Sunday evening forum that invited King to come talk in Tucson. So he was invited to talk about civil rights, not to talk to a church audience. Correct. He uh, gave a speech called It's a Great Time to Be Alive. Um, The audience was mostly activists and U of A individuals. Um, Surprisingly, uh, there was a couple people that that I did locate uh, that were alive and actually remembered him coming to Tucson. Jackie Price Barnes uh, was a little girl at the time, but she remembered listening to him and was impressed by him. And eventually her mother brought her and her brother down to meet uh, Martin Luther King and to get an autograph as well. Um, Afterwards, it was a get-together at the U of A Student Union, and he met a guy named Reverend Casper Glenn, uh, who was reverend of the Southside Presbyterian Church. Um, They talked, and uh, Dr. King was very impressed with the fact that he had a multiracial church. It was not common where he was from, from Alabama, um, to have a multiracial church. And so uh, they agreed to meet the next day, and Reverend Glenn was going to take him down to the uh, Southside Presbyterian Church over there on West 23rd Street and kind of just show him his uh, church and, you know, photographs of his congregation. And at the time, uh, the Southside Presbyterian Church uh, was predominantly Papago Indian, what we call Tonoatam Indian at this point. Um, Dr. King uh, stated that he had actually never been to an Indian reservation in his whole life and never had a chance to meet anyone who was what we've referred to as Indian or Native American now. And he actually asked Reverend Glenn if he would take him to visit the Indian reservation. 
In your article, you portray Dr. Martin Luther King as being very interested in listening and learning. Reverend Glenn recalled when I interviewed him that uh, Dr. King was very kind of careful about what questions he asked. Um, he did not want to offend them. He also did not want to show his lack of knowledge of their tribal heritage. Um, so Dr. King did a lot of listening. Um, they met with the chairman of the tribe, uh, Enos Francisco Jr., um, also the police chief, George Norris, and Henry Thrussell, I believe is how you pronounce the name there. So we had an opportunity with some of the, with the true leaders of the tribe. Um, they also enjoyed a soda and something called chuchuma. Uh, which I've been told by uh, Donald Harvey, who's the chief justice of the Otham Nation, that that's a kind of like a tortilla type of bread. Um, so it actually, uh, Reverend Glenn actually remembered the name of it, Chuchuma, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. So what about the second visit? Uh, what brought Dr. Martin Luther King back to Tucson? He was also brought here um, by Mary Jeffries of the Sunday Evening Forum, uh, for a second visit. This was 1962. Um, There's quite a bit of stuff going on at the time as far as uh, civil rights in Tucson. Um, Tucson was desegregating its eating locations. Um, so I think that might have played into the fact that he came back a second time just because there was some stuff going on at that point. I was really interested to see that one of the sources that you talked to for your article was David Yetman. Well, you know, I had a chance to uh, sit down with uh, David Yetman, interview him. Um, he was actually in the choir um, of the Catalina United Methodist Church, uh, which is located over there on Speedway. I think it's about Tucson Boulevard around that area there. Um, he was actually a student at the U of A at the time when Dr. King uh, showed up. So it was pretty interesting. He had a chance to... Uh, eat lunch with him after Dr. King's speech, and then he actually drove him, uh, Dr. King, back to the Santa Rita Hotel. So he had, a, he had a small part, but he got to meet with him and got to listen to his speech and stuff like that. So it was kind of interesting that um, a little bit of a local celebrity, you know, known for the Desert Speaks, and also in the Americas with David Yetman, and he was also a Pima County supervisor at one point as well. Of the probably thousands of speeches that Dr. King gave, uh, these speeches that he gave in Tucson no longer exist. But I understand you were able to find some quotes from his first visit in 1959, and I was wondering if you'd share one of those with us, David. Definitely. Um, one thing he said that was, segregation is a festering sore, a cancer. It stifles the soul of the nation. We are not looking for an advantage, which would keep the same old problem. Black supremacy would be as bad as white supremacy but we seek equality of all races. We are not seeking racial equality just to combat communism, but because such equality is right. David Layton's Street Smarts column runs the first Monday of every month in the Arizona Daily Star. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.